0: This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette.
1: Well, I just made some Penang curry, right? So I'm definitely looking forward to eating that. We actually had it last night for dinner, and I just, I want to eat it again today. So I made a batch of it, just the base, the curry itself, so I can just add my vegetables. So that's what's on my plate for sure.
0: Okay, Penang curry, that is, you know, that ties with, pad thai for me, for, yes. for Thai foods. Sometimes I go back and forth, but it's literally between that and the and curry. And you do that for, from scratch, of course, yeah?
1: Yes, ma'am, but sometimes, you know, I'll cheat and I'll buy the red curry paste, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sometimes I don't feel like going through all that extra work, especially if I can't find galangal, you know?
0: Oh my gosh, see, that's the chef's secret, and that's really about the way that we like to really inspire people here. Like, he's letting you know, hey, I don't always do everything from scratch. There is just sometimes where I'm like, hey, break this jar <laughs> in case of yep, emergency, yep. right? <laughs>
1: exactly. You got it.
0: You have to really balance it out. So yeah, how do you kind of plant-based it up? Because I know like with a lot of Thai dishes and a lot of cultural dishes in general, like there's always like fish sauce snuck in or yep. oyster sauce or different things. How do you chef add that up?
1: So one, I do nori sheets and kombu to create that seafood flavor, right, to replace the fish sauce. And then my mom actually made some roti because, you know, she's from Guyana. So that's something that is throughout the culture and just Guyanese food in general. So we had roti and we had some rice. I love me some jasmine rice. Like I can eat rice every day.
0: Okay. All right. All right. So yeah, you mentioned that your mother is Guyanese. And, you know, if people are really, really good at picking up on accents. They could <laughs> yep. tell by now <laughs> that you've been hanging out in Guyana as yep. well, even though you're yep. in Atlanta. Can you tell us a bit about growing up, your upbringing, and in how you really started to incorporate plant-based foods in your diet? Because here's the thing with me and folks from these amazing places where fruits and vegetables are just year-round. I find that your diet and your lifestyle is almost kind of locked in already like if you've got coconuts yep. hanging from the trees i know a million things to do with with the coconut so i think that when you're from a tropical island you basically have the cheat code for yes. wellness
1: i agree <laughs> i agree <laughs> i agree
0: so yeah i mean there are fish in the sea and you're surrounded by that. So I would love to hear just how you've been able to navigate that. And then really, what were some of those indicators growing up that pushed you more into becoming the plant-based chef and expert that you are today?
1: So I guess growing up in the Caribbean, like for me personally, we lived in almost every single Caribbean island and in South America, in Guyana. So we were traveling all over the place as, you know, my brother and I were much younger. And Just growing up in the Caribbean, like you said, you have access to an amazing amount of fruits and vegetables, right? So that's already a very big part of the diet in the Caribbean, besides, of course, the jerk chicken and the fish and all of that. But vegetables is still just a big of a deal. So we always had a lot of vegetables in the house. We always cooked a lot of vegetables. But I think what really pushed me into being more plant-based was just, I guess, when growing up. I don't know for a lot of people, but for me, I really did not like the vegetables my mom made or my dad from the really big, chunky onions. Like I'm a texture person. I'm a texture freak. So if the textures of the food wasn't a certain way, I just didn't touch it. Right. Like I was a super picky eater. Mm. Yeah. So once I figured out how to really make vegetables the way I liked, once I went to culinary school, I was like, okay, so I actually do love vegetables. I just need to cook it a certain way. So with that, I just kept cooking more vegetables. And consciously, I would say at least 10, 15 years ago, Jane and I, before we got married, my wife, I was like, let's not eat meat every single day. You know, there's some days we should just not eat any meat. And it was just kind of like a running joke kind of thing. But that just ended up being our journey. And that led into the five of us, our three kids and the two of us watching What the Health. And... After we watched that, the kids looked at us and was like, daddy, mommy, so we're not going to eat meat anymore. Right. And <laughs> we were like, no, maybe, you know, so that kind of, sparked, <laughs> you know, because at the that pressure, point, yes, 100 percent. It was accountability. And the thing is, for me and for you as a chef you know, classically trained, butchering a whole animal, all of this stuff, the way you sear bacon and all that, like that was my jam 20 years ago. Like you couldn't tell me anything like vegan. What? What is that? I wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. But as I got older, everything I'm hearing on the news, everything I'm reading, a more predominantly plant based diet just seems like the way to go. So we just kind of pivoted towards that and we literally went cold turkey for the most part and just cut out all the meat. We didn't buy any more meat, no seafood, um, no poultry. But then, of course, that craving starts to kick in. And we're like, oh, so are we going to do a little bit of fish maybe? So Jane and I would kind of like sneak and do some fish because the kids, <laughs> they're like, Daddy, Mommy, we don't eat meat. We don't eat seafood. And we're like, yeah, we know. So anytime we would have date night or something like that, we might sneak some fish. And then I... After, I think, maybe a year of off and on doing that, being sort of pescatarian, quote unquote, we just decided to drop everything and just stick with 100% being plant-based. And a lot of people know this, dairy was the last thing we kicked because it's so addictive, right? The cheese. And then, of course, literally every pastry has egg or butter in it or something like that. So that was the most tricky part for us. But once we got a handle on it, it just became something that we just did and we didn't look back and fast forward to today we are kicking butt
0: wow it's usually the other way around when it comes to kids like how you were talking about what was happening with you and your mother growing up and you were really against the texture and children have a way of making up these random things about what they will and won't eat yes and you have the exact opposite problem you're legit hiding the meat and dairy from the children and what were the ages of the kids at this point
1: so we decided i think six years ago so my oldest would have been seven and then my two were like babies like three and two or something so they were pretty young but for whatever reason it stuck when they watched it and it was like oh no me and they were okay with it maybe i'd say For the first year, the oldest asked for chicken or something like that once or twice, but it was never something where, oh, I miss this. I miss that. I want to eat it. I don't want to eat vegetables like my kids love vegetables, love, love it. So I think it it was easy for us. I'm not going to lie. The kids definitely helped and encouraged us with this whole journey for sure.
0: That's incredible. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, what? Can you say to folks out there that have the opposite problem, which is basically, I can't get my kid to eat this? What could you say to parents really struggling to help align just mealtime in general? Because what ends up happening is that folks have to make something for themselves and then have to make something separate for their children. So, what are some good transitional and just more ways to get
1: them to do it i I love that question you know because i get it a lot and one of the things i tell clients is people eat with their eyes right lynette you know this adults kids it it doesn't matter what age you are like if the food nine out of ten times if the food looks good on the plate people are willing to try it and vice versa if it looks like trash even though it might be the best tasting meal ever put on a plate if it looks like garbage, more than likely you've already put up a mental block and you're like, I'm not touching it with a 10-foot pole. So yeah. I always tell parents to present the food in a way that it looks appetizing. That's one. And then two, color. Overcooked vegetables is like a crime. That's mm. like my pet peeve. And kids, they can detect overcooked <laughs> vegetables like nobody's business. So <laughs> if, if the broccoli looks brown, gray, if the string beans are mushy and overcooked and they're not bright green like they're supposed to be or can be kids are not trying to touch it one of the things i did to really encourage my kids to love and enjoy vegetables was the way i cut certain things like spinach the bigger leaves and you don't cut them up they can tend to be slimy when you cook them so with that mouthfeel and you know i'm all about texture like i said yeah, so me too you know what I mean? So I started chopping up the spinach first before I cook it. The string beans and stuff like that, I would cut it into smaller sizes, asparagus, because certain things, depending on how they look, the kids are not trying to enjoy. it. So it was always for me to make sure my green vegetables were bright. The chlorophyll was just super green. I blanched and shot them first, just so I can retain that color. And the other thing I would say to parents is to involve the kids. Some parents will feel like their kids, what do they know? But they are just as important in the decision making as anybody else. So I would take my kids shopping. I would take them to the farmer's market. I would let them pick out the vegetables, right? Because the minute they are a part of this whole equation in terms of going to the supermarket or the farmer's market, actually picking out the vegetables and then taking it a step further and actually having them help you prepare the food, you're you have a way better chance of them trying the vegetables this way versus you just doing everything and just dropping it in front of them and say, eat your vegetables, they're good for you. Do it because I say so kind of thing. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. It's interesting because I feel like you've taken it to the next level as far as involving your children because when you go to Knife and Spoon and you click on Our Founders, Not only is it a photo of you, but it is literally the cutest photo (laughs) of your son with a mini, oh my gosh, a mini apron. And it's just like a little mini me, a mini apron with a mini bio and just (laughs) everything. So- You've literally made this a family affair, which I think yes. is is really awesome. What was your you know reasoning behind that, and how is it going, and what do you see the future? Yes, you know yes. But yeah, tell me uh, more about this.
1: Awesome, awesome. So he's six, and he is so involved in knife and spoon, like it's crazy. I remember he was I think three years old, and we had just come back from London. And I went to go get some fabric because I was testing out a new type of apron that I wanted to uh, carry on the website. And so I got some really nice vintage denim in London um, in the fashion district. And when we came back, he was like, Daddy, is this for the aprons? I was like, Yes, it is. So every time I would do videos, he's like, Daddy, can I do a video too? And I wouldn't, I literally would not tell him what to say. And he said, I worked for knife and spoon and my dad just da da da. And he just went into business mode like someone prepped him to do it. So he really wanted to be involved. He asked. He's like, Daddy, can I take pictures in the apron for the website? Like, this is all him. So I was like, I have to do this because originally Jane and I, we started two mango sisters for his sisters. And, you know, we created some hair care products like all vegan natural hair care products. And I didn't want him to feel left out. So when we created Knife and Spoon, I was like, all right, this is going to be Ed's jam with me. You know, we're going to do it. And he just took the ball and he went with it. And he hasn't stopped since. He continues to ask every chance he gets to either record a video for us to post Or come up with a new apron. He's even trying to come up with new products. He does the taste testing when we do our new seasonings and all that stuff. So it's, he's really involved. So it's awesome.
0: Wow. Wow. That is, (laughs) that definitely is like involved. That is very involved. (laughs) He totally is. Wow. Okay. This is, this is great. Any ideas or thoughts for, actually creating like video content or, or more things where he's like speaking and engaging or maybe like a spinoff, like, you know, baby knife and spoon or kids, some type of more kid centric thing.
1: Yes, I- I'm glad you asked that. He loves doing pancakes and we have the brunch and waffle mix, but we're trying to come up with something that he can call his own, maybe like a cookie mix. So we're working on a few things. We're not sure what avenue we're going to go, but right now he's really obsessed with the aprons and the different colors. So we're trying to figure out how do we just do something where it's all him from start to finish and I don't have to touch it so he can totally get the credit for it.
0: That's cool. I love the apron. Thank you for sending me one. I mean, I think that, gosh, that would be great for the kids because once they have something that is a tool or some type of accessory to what it is they're doing, they get into it even more. It's especially something like an adult thing is an apron. Oh my gosh, I get like a child's version of this. Yeah.
1: Whenever we, whenever we cook, they run and get their aprons on. Like that's the first thing they do. So they're all about being in the kitchen, chef ready. My daughter's they're both waiting to grab a knife so they can start chopping. I'm like, ah, you got some time. We can prep some onions, peel some garlic and stuff for now, snap some sh- sugar snap peas, but I'll keep the knife for myself.
0: So they only get the spoon. It's, it's Just funny. The spoon. <laughs> Just the spoon. Because it's interesting. When I lived in Mexico, like, I worked with, like, a machete a lot for coconuts and things, and I would see really young children Go into town with the machete, like way younger than I would really think. I feel like when you grow up in a certain place, and maybe this was the same for you, like growing up. a 100%. Where, did you have a machete 100%. at like six years old? And now you're telling your son, hey, hey, you only get the spoon.
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because that's literally what it was. Like, you know, growing up in the Caribbean, especially in Guyana, like my parents, well, my grandparents, I should say, they had a farm. So, Machete or in the Caribbean or in Guyana, they call it a cutlass, right? A cutlass. Oh,
0: really? I didn't know that. Okay. I learned something new, a cutlass. Okay.
1: Yeah. We call it a cutlass and it's literally the same thing. And I had one and coconuts, of course, like you're chopping coconuts all day long because it's just there growing freely. So I was definitely using a knife much earlier than I let my daughter use a knife.
0: When did you move to the United States?
1: 2016.
0: So you were, you were like new, new. And before you moved to the United States, how often or how frequent or, you know, how long had you been traveling to the United States?
1: So before that move, I never. Wow. Before. Yeah. So I came here at 16 and it was like a culture shock, of course. And the year I came was one of the biggest snowstorms ever. So I'm literally <laughs> off the plane in Island my pineapple boy. shirt in, in my silk shirt. Just kinda hanging out because I'm from the Caribbean and the minute I get
0: off the plane I was like, What is this?
1: Like it was so cold. So cold. Yes. <laughs> I yes. feel
0: like it was a culture shock on the weather and some of the yes. other culture, but I feel like it was a very safe landing ground as far yes. as just kind of food. Can you can you dig into how you were able to kind of fit into that but then also what were some of the really big culinary culture shocks for you?
1: Oh man. So
0: <laughs> I know right <laughs> uh, uh chips, right? Let's
1: see. So we got here just trying to figure things out with food. It it was a little tricky because Now you're just seeing all of these new ingredients and, and, you know, different vegetables and just a whole gamut of things, right, that we didn't have access to in the Caribbean. But I think what made a difference or an impact for me was just my mom was very, she's awesome, you know, and she was just very open to me trying new things. As soon as I got here and we started high school, I was like, I'm going to do culinary because at that point, I've been cooking since I was like six years old. So, well, obviously not professionally, but I was just very comfortable in the kitchen and it was yeah. just very easy for me. So, throughout high school, my home ec teacher, she really instilled in me just how to be really awesome when it comes to recipe retention and stuff like that. And so that really helped when she exposed me to a lot because in my high school, we had a class where it was home ec, but you cooked for the faculty. So you had to prepare an appetizer, entree, and dessert every day, five days a week. So that was like my first kind of restaurant ish kind of experience in just experimenting and just being able to create new dishes. And that really catapulted my journey into food a lot more than anything else, really.
0: Wow. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. So you really had the support of your family. Just yep. through the entire way here, which I think yep. is really fantastic. Now, when it comes to, again, those big culinary culture shocks of just different foods, like, were there different junk food habits that you picked up, but then also ones that you didn't pick up, but was able to see into the psyche and the offerings of American fast food and fast food culture? How did you really enter into that?
1: I think one of the things. The first thing was hot dogs, right? Because in the Caribbean, Nathan's like, there's, <laughs> on the yeah, <laughs> like there, there's no such thing as a hot dog stand. There's no one actually selling hot dogs. So I think that was one of the first things that I got really obsessed with, just being able to get a hot dog in the street. Because, you know, New York, Brooklyn, anywhere, they're everywhere. So it was that, pretzels, fast food. I didn't really get into too much, even though I worked at a Burger King. Believe it or not, I did. It was one of my first jobs when I came here to Brooklyn. And I'm not going to lie, I hated that job. Uh, (laughs) You don't have to lie, like most
0: folks, probably. You know,
1: at this point, I was in high school and I knew I was going to be going into food. So I was like, let me see if I can get some kind of experience. Because being 16, I really didn't know, you know, anything about fine dining yet. I just knew that there were cool restaurants. But I was like, well, obviously I can't afford it and I don't think I can get a job. So I started with Burger King, but they were having me clean toilets and I was like ah, mm. that that was a turn off for me because I'm like it's one thing if I got hired as a janitor or a steward or or anything like that then I get it that's my job. But for me to be a cook and then you're telling me that I need to go clean the toilets like that didn't rub off with me. So I was yeah, like, you absolutely. know what? I'm out. But in terms of things that really food wise I guess immediately after I graduated high school, I got to work for HBO. I went to culinary school, which is the art institute. It was the first art institute that was created. But at that time, it was called New York Restaurant School. Yeah. So they changed the name and they started taking on more students and stuff like that, opening up more campuses. But right out of the high school, I did that and that got a job at HBO, the corporate building in Manhattan. So that was my first really introduction to the heavy duty prepping and serving a thousand people a day for lunch. So it was intense. I'd say 60 pounds of potatoes a day, cooking like 300 chicken breasts. It was just insane. But with that, it just opened up my eyes into just a different way that people went out to eat, what they ate for lunch. And stuff like that. But that was my introduction into corporate America and just mainstream food, I would say. Mm.
0: okay, so a lot of folks are self-taught. That's the one thing when it comes to cooking, culinary food. You don't have to go to school for this. No. So the fact that you did go to school and then the fact that you did work in these different environments, looking back, would you still go to school or and what did you learn from school that you feel like you couldn't have learned anyplace else? So what did you get from it?
1: Oh, man. Wow. You know, (laughs) okay. there's a few ways to tackle that question. I I will say this. The money that I paid for school was not worth it. And, you know, just with anything else, you get what you put in. Right. So for me, knowing that I had to pay all that money, I was like, I'm going to get everything out of this. I'm going to do my hardest to get the best job I can get, the best offer and stuff like that. But you definitely don't need to go to school. But I will say I loved school for a few things. One, the doors that it opened, right, in terms of me getting a job at HBO, working for John George, being able to go on CNN and do a few shows to help some of the chefs there prep. So it open up certain doors, right, that necessarily might not be able to be afforded to you if you don't go to school. So I would say those were the benefits of going to school. But in terms of learning, whatever you learn in school, in terms of technical things, you could definitely learn by just staging at a restaurant, right? Because plenty of buddies of mine that didn't go to school and they're amazing chefs, executive chefs, and they're killing it. They just learned from the dishwasher station all the way up, Garmager, you know, hot apps, you know, Poisson station, you know, the grill station, whatever it is, right? Because you can definitely get the same kind of training, just someone won't be there holding your hands. Well, this is what mise en place means. This is mirepoix, you know, you're gonna learn it by default, right? But it's not gonna be notes. That You're going to have that you can refer to later on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and what you're doing in school and just what happens on the line is it's so crazy because it's like it's it's two different things. And it's, yes, it's the execution is one thing, but the energy, I think, is what really changes between learning something in school and actually applying it in the real world so to speak yeah I went to school in New York I went to art school and I say that like what you said is exactly the same way that I feel like I didn't pay to actually learn how to do art I learned how to network more with people and I got an opportunity to go and use all of these resources in school without having to set that up myself and then also finding that opportunity to say like oh wow okay I just got like a big advertising job. I wouldn't have been able to do that. So you kind of get paid back in a way, like if you work yes. it the right way, but it definitely is an investment into, it, into a network for sure. And I think, you know, as an alumni, you know, as you continue to grow, they obviously want to have a part of that as well.
1: And, you know, like you said, <laughs> I remember tons of people that I went to culinary school with, as soon as we graduated, half of them did not even end up staying in culinary. One went to CVS to work as a pharmacist, assistant. What? You know, yeah. Like there were so many people that just kind of fell off after paying all of this money just because, you know, like I said before, it it really depends on how much you put into it and how hungry you are because they can give you the job placement and all of this stuff. But if you literally sometimes have to fend for yourself and like literally go out there and get the actual job that you want, you know, but there were some people that just didn't make it in terms of sticking with the culinary after paying all that money. And it was just so sad to see.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the same thing that I've seen with art school. A friend of mine, she is totally a nurse, totally a, a registered nurse. And that's what she does. And I'm like, wow, we were in the dark room together. But okay, <laughs> that works. You're looking at x rays now, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, life twists and turns. And I yes. think that's what really it's about and it's finding what really works for you and then how all of that kind of like spills out and I think that with the experience and the education that you have I think that's what's really been able to spill over into just the different products and things that you offer and the services you've sent me a lot of really cool stuff I think all of that you know again plays into it you've got spices you've got breakfast you've got cookbooks can you talk about basically everything that you have (laughs) just go down the line because you've got a whole line of a lot of amazing things my brother loves your spices he absolutely loves them he's been using them
1: so we have
0: a pancake and waffle mix
1: that started right when covid happened and things got crazy we have about eight different seasonings Um, spices. I'm working on four new ones that we're going to launch next month. I can't wait for these to come out. And we have two cookbooks, we have aprons, and we have some merch, some sweaters, some t-shirts, all that good stuff.
0: Okay, that's a a (laughs) lot, you know, because most folks like work with one thing. How has it been from an entrepreneurial perspective of getting these products out, getting the packaging? the co-packing the distribution the order fulfillment like that is like that's why when I see this I'm like oh my god god bless you like you've got like more than (laughs) one product that you're doing how is all of that working for those that are trying to crack into the food business from a packaged goods point of view what are some things that you could touch on with that
1: Gotcha. So funny you ask that because I literally just did a masterclass not too long ago because I know a lot of people want to do spices and products, but there's just so many companies out there. And unfortunately, some of them are very shady. So I had to go through a massive list of purveyors in terms of who I wanted to get my spices from and where they're getting their spices from. And then with the pancake and waffle mix, that was, oh my goodness, that took a minute because the first few companies that I started to work with, it just did not end up good. Between communication, you know, them getting the money and me waiting forever to hear back from them. There's a lot that goes into starting your own line. But it's, it's fun for me because I love recipe testing and I love creating products. So not being in a restaurant right now, especially with how things end up going on, with covid 2 years ago it just made sense for me to create products that i can still get to people that wanted to have products from me instead of me yeah. doing my events or being in a restaurant
0: yeah yeah you're just essentially scaling yourself so these yep. products are just like an extension of you um,
1: exactly that
0: that people can really activate in their home from the from the service perspective you're doing tv which we're going to get on in a second But you're also doing things on the back end. Like, are you doing recipe development, consulting with others?
1: Yes. I just finished working with a restaurant group. I created a whole menu for them, all vegan. It's a totally new concept. And that was fun because I literally had to do appetizers, entrees, desserts, of course. I consult with restaurateurs. I do recipes for people in general. And I create products or I help them with recipes so they can now create a product with that recipe. So for me... A consulting chef is just one of the hats that I wear besides creating products for myself.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's the way that you really need to stay afloat.
1: Yep, yep.
0: (laughs) You have to really diversify your experience. So I I definitely see that. And I think that that's awesome. Now, let's talk TV. You've been on, right? You've been on quite a few shows. You've been on Food Networks. Chopped, which you won one of the competition. You've been on Beat Bobby Flay, Chef Wanted, and a few others. So so yeah, let's get to the one that you won. Let's also talk about just the auditioning process and how that goes and the production and, and everything. We had Chef Priyanka on a yes. while ago and she's I heard that one. yeah she's been on a lot of different shows as well and that's a completely different animal than just saying hey i'm just going to work in this restaurant or hey i'm going to create these <laughs> products it's lights its cameras its action it's storylines it's
1: <laughs> it's a lot
0: right right it's so dig lot. into it how did you get that opportunity and how did you continue to kind of parlay that into other shows
1: so when i worked at Budokan in new york city the oh chef God, of you the time... at the time
0: Yes, for five years, Lynette. Five years. Budokan's amazing. Okay, so you're at Budokan.
1: Yes, so I'm at Budokan, and the chef at the time, his name is Lon Semenzma, amazing chef, real good friend of mine. So where Budokan is situated, it's in the same building as MLB. It's right across the street from the Google building, and it's also the home to one of Food Network's main offices. So he's walking in the lobby I should say because it's also this is Chelsea Market so there's tons of different purveyors on that same floor where Budokan is and he's heading to work and one of the casting directors for Chop was like hey you know he's telling me this they wanted to have him on the show so he spoke to them and he was like they asked him do you have anyone else any of your line cooks or chefs you know would like to be on the show and he said yeah I'll get you some names so he came into work and he was like, Ed, do you want to be on Chop? I was like, of course, because this was when Chop was like hot and it's still hot. Yeah, but Chop
0: was like popping, popping. Was... Poppin', yeah.
1: What? And you know, this was like 2010 when I did Chop. So it was definitely, you know, this is season four, so it's still pretty new. So he said, you know, here is the number, go do the interview and let me know how it goes. So the way the interview went for Chop was I went to, I think, Long Island City, is where they were holding their interviews at the time. And it's literally two cameras someone is sitting down in front of me and just asked me a bunch of technical questions and just to get my TV present on camera. And once that was done, I got a call back and was like, we would love for you to be on the show. I was like, what? Like that? So once I got the okay, I told my chef and we literally, for the next month, we practice our version of Chop at work. So every day I would come (laughs) into work and my chef would literally say, all right, Ed, Here's five ingredients. Make something out of nowhere. So I was doing this at least three days a week, right, for a month. And that's yeah.
0: awesome. That's like, it's like training yes. for the Olympics. Yes.
1: And that's chopped all day long because you literally don't know what's in the basket until you open it. This is the truth. Like you do not get any idea, no tips, nothing. So I get to the show and I get there maybe quarter to six in the morning And I didn't leave until about 12, 1 o'clock at night. And the only reason I stayed that long was because I won. So I had to go through the whole process. But it was really amazing. I did it and it was nerve-wracking. You have this heavy coat that you're wearing. The ovens are all at 550 degrees. You have a pot of water boiling in the back. So you have all this heat. And there's wires all over the ground where you're running. I mean, it was really, really intense. But it was fun. Honestly, I would do it again if I could, because I just love that rush. You know, it's amazing. But that's how I got on CHOP. And once you're in the database for Food Network, you get emails for different shows Mm -hmm. all the time. And then you just have to kind of reply if you want to do
0: it. Okay, so how did that happen with Bobby Flay? Because Be Bobby Flay has always been interesting to me because of just what it is. What did you make and, and how did that go? I didn't see that one.
1: So Beef Bobby Flay, they give us sea urchin as the secret ingredient. So I did pretty much a toast point with caramelized shallots, onions, ginger, stuff like that. I made like a really nice saute. And then I poached some of the oni, made a sauce with some, left some whole, and kind of topped my toasted garlic toast points. But the two judges that I had, they said that my seasoning was very aggressive. Oh, Okay. I mean, I am from the Caribbean, so I do like some heat, you know. So, I, uh, unfortunately, it was, uh, I guess, a little too spicy. So, they didn't like that too much. But the funny thing is they ate all of it. So, I was just shocked. Oh. But I didn't win. <laughs> I wasn't disappointed. It was more of a learning lesson for me, you know. Because sometimes you go into things and you're very confident. But then God has a different plan. And he is like, I'm going to bring you down
0: Let me humble. Let, let me humble this brother for a yeah, second. Yeah, exactly, you know. <laughs> So, I was definitely humbled. Definitely. Do you see yourself doing any more TV or just maybe content of your own? I think
1: so because I, I love educating people and I love sharing the culinary knowledge that I have.
0: That's what I want to talk about, which is your cookbook, veganish food you want to eat. I think one of the reasons why we click so hard is that we really leave room to meet people where they're at on their journey. So the title yeah. of your book alone, The Ish at the Inn, Totally yep. disarms people. Like you leave that open for people to really move yes. in it. And I mean, the, the burger on the cover obviously is <laughs> yes, really easy to get people into seeing this as something that is achievable. It's, yeah, yeah, approachable and achievable. So I'd love for you to talk about your book. Let's get into some of the easier recipes, things that you could call out here that people can start to get activated with.
1: So, yeah, Veganish was a name that. I was really adamant about it because I wanted it to be approachable. I remember when I first got on Clubhouse, there were some vegan rooms that just really made people that were not vegan feel really bad, you know? And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't in that realm of veganism where you have the people that point fingers, right? Because everyone's on their own journey. It's great and good for you that you're vegan and you come to that realization and that consciousness early but we're all not there you know and the people that are there you just need to be someone that facilitates people getting there and not being you should and you should not and you're bad because you eat meat i was never one to be like that so when i created the books i just wanted to have it be very approachable because a lot of my clients obviously they're not vegans and they want to be they're trying to be more plant-based so this just gives them an opportunity to get the book and say, oh, well, these things, I can try them. And, you know, it's not vegan because that word, it scares people, Mm -hmm. unfortunately.
0: (laughs) It definitely does. It makes people think that it's all or nothing. And I think a lot of that has to do with really culture in general, where Mm -hmm. we hear these stories of people going cold turkey and making these huge wins. But that's not most people. Right, most people have yep. this ebb and flow. They have this up and down, and I think when you really open that up for folks to have it more attainable, then it definitely makes most more sense. Out of your book, what would be the most approachable recipe that you could think of that we could share with our listeners right now?
1: I think the the red beans.
0: Okay, tell us about right.
1: it. Right. Yeah, so the red beans, I love that because growing up in the Caribbean, you do beans all the time rice and peas, you know, there's pinto beans, there's tons of beans that we're just familiar with and it's just part of our diet. But with this particular recipe, I added flavors like cinnamon and allspice, which just gives such a nice warming note. And the flavor combinations is just unexpected, but The flavor that you get from this recipe, I just love it. And it goes well with so many things. And it's literally a one pot because it's beans. And the thing about the beans is that you can make a big batch of it. And for meal prepping, you can portion it and put it in the freezer and pull it out as needed. And it is just as good as the day you made it. So that's one of the recipes I really love from... The first cookbook for okay. sure.
0: And what about the breakfast ones? So you have the Veganish Breakfast, which is the companion to uh, the Veganish. Yeah, So tell us more about that.
1: So with Veganish Breakfast, there is tavales there that I mean, I I just love when you can. Obviously, it's a more time intensive thing because you have to to a lot of time to do it. But for breakfast, there's the avocado toast, which is a go to for us at home here. I just love avocados, and they're so healthy for you. Right. In terms of all the good fat that it provides and just flavor and taste. I mean, you can't go wrong with that. So the avocado toast, I think, is one of my favorites for breakfast. We do that at least once a week.
0: Yeah. Avocado toast is. And I'm assuming that you're adding uh, one of your spices. Yeah. yeah. Can you run down your spice line?
1: Yes. So we, I travel, well, I used to travel a lot. So every time I would travel, I would make it my mission to collect spices. So I've been to India, Thailand, China, Korea, Japan, you know, like the really exotic places that provide really crazy culture flavors. So I wanted to have people travel the world without leaving their house. So we have Afrobeats, which is African flavors. We have Caribbean heat speaks for itself. Taco Tuesday. We have Tuscany, which is our Italian version of an Italian seasoning. We have Arabian Nights, which is a really beautiful Moroccan kind of flavor. What else do we have?
0: The Tuscan's my favorite. The Tuscan. I've been really? roasting yes because I've been on this roasted squash butternut squash and acorn squash kick and i'll take that and then dust it with a little bit of smoked sea salt (laughs) i already know
1: i already know what that's gonna taste like i already know
0: i know and it's it's so simple and it's so delicious i think that's where a lot of your spices have shined for me literally roasted vegetables because that's just it's just an easy canvas to be able to just just paint on there. So it's, gosh, yes. yes, so, so good. But the Tuscan is definitely hitting those marks. When it comes to converting those meat-heavy meals, have you found some go-tos? What are some suggestions for folks to kind of... Do superfood swaps with some of their favorite really meat centric meals. Like, what are what are some of the cultural things that you grew up that you've been able to kind of switch around? Like, do you have like a vegan curry goat, for example, or something <laughs> right? <laughs> oxtails? That. Like, did, did, were you oh. able to veganize oxtails? I I was able to veganize it without <laughs> the
1: oxtails, so it's literally. sauce you know with the potatoes the carrots and the beans Mm -hmm. but for me i'm a lover of mushrooms right and all kinds of mushrooms so that's like my go-to for substituting any kind of meat right and then the different varieties because every mushroom has its place you know so i'm using like king oyster mushrooms for any kind of pulled pork kind of idea or shredded chicken or something like that i'm using the maitakes or the hen of the woods for like a battered situation for like a fried chicken. In terms of whole roasting, like if I I was going to do like a version of a whole roasted chicken or something like that, I've been working on this cauliflower dish, right, where I take the whole head of cauliflower and I use, depending on what flavor profile I'm trying to go for, I'll use some of my spices. Like I did the other day, I did Chinatown with sesame oil, soy sauce, tons of liquid smoke and smoked paprika and smoked salt. Yes. Mixed that up together, rubbed it all over the cauliflower, threw it into the oven at like 400 degrees. Lynette, I'm telling you, the flavor of that, it was so crazy.
0: Okay, so first of all, I have cauliflower. I literally just bought some yesterday. And I am a huge, I mean, seriously, everyone listening, a huge takeaway is smoke. Smoke is... Literally the it's it's the cheat code for flavor. It's also the cheat code for anyone that's like transitioning from meat because what smoke does is just signals to you that you're eating like barbecue when you're really not, because that's how much you associate it with. And then with the smoke, I don't think people realize I know you do. There's so (laughs) many different nuances to the different types of smoke. So you notice that he's stacked up this smoke with different versions and and you're you're getting the liquid smoke. That's a certain type of flavor profile. The smoke salt. Like you have to use salt anyway. You're gonna use a little bit of salt to bring out the different flavors. Exactly. So if you layer that with smoke salt, then you have another situation. Then you have the smoked paprika that's also gonna give you the color. <laughs> and then also give you another version of smoke. So when you really bite into something that is so chunky and amazing like mushrooms. Yeah, or the cauliflower. Okay, so I'm gonna do this cauliflower tonight. But yes, the mushrooms are are definitely something that I think all vegans and non-vegans can really get into. It's such yep. a game changer, you know, for the texture and what he just ran down as far as just the different mushrooms giving different textures. Really dig into that because that's where you're really gonna find a lot of, of good stuff. And I'm, I'm proud of you, Chef Ed, because you were such a big texture person. And usually when people are texture people, mushrooms are the first things that they do not want to rock with.
1: You're right. And <laughs> I hated mushrooms when I was younger. You, ah, you know, it was, see that? It, it ah. Was, it, I did not like it. And the thing is, unfortunately, right, Lynette, and you know this, a lot of people don't know how to handle mushrooms. So because of that, you end up with mushrooms that don't taste good and don't look good. People think that they need to wash mushrooms, right? Or, you know, people don't know that when you're searing mushrooms that you can't overcrowd the pan because then you create condensation, you create moisture that cools down your pan. It stops that myelard effect. You don't get any caramelization, you know, and that's where the flavor is, right? So there's certain things that people don't do. So you end up with this waterlogged mushroom that just is not appetizing. But once I started going to culinary school, And I actually got into a restaurant where we got fresh, freshly delivered mushrooms. And I started playing with them and cooking them myself. I was like, hold up. So this is how mushrooms is actually supposed to taste? (laughs) You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. You don't realize that. My brother's a huge texture person as well. And he thought he hated mushrooms until... He started really digging into what I was making because there's so many different ways to be able to do it. I I think it's it's just, gosh, gosh, gosh. For your mushrooms, where do you suggest folks get them from, you know, buying suggestions, things? Okay, so first thing
1: I would say, if you have access to a farmer's market, check that out because that's where I get most of my mushrooms from right now, a farmer's market. But if you don't have access to that, then one of your higher end supermarkets will have mushrooms. Like I'll go to Whole Foods to get like fresh shiitakes, oyster mushrooms. Sometimes my takis are hen of the woods as well. But then if you don't have any specialty kind of supermarket or an Asian market, they will always have a really great variety of mushrooms. Like H Mart is one that we have here and they have a really big variety of mushrooms. The other thing I would say, if you can't get fresh mushrooms, then dry mushrooms are not bad and dried mushrooms you'll normally get oysters you'll get maybe lobster mushrooms you'll get morels you'll never really get dried button mushrooms just because button mushrooms are just available everywhere and And they're so cheap
0: anyways exactly
1: exactly you know but unfortunately the one thing with button mushrooms is that everyone that sells them they wrap them in plastic and I don't think people that sell mushrooms understand that mushrooms need to breathe. Like the minute you wrap them up in plastic, it creates that smelly smell that you get when you open up the mushrooms from the supermarket. And then on top of the wrapping, it creates water in the packaging and that gets your mushrooms wet and they get all murky. You know, I can talk about mushrooms all day, Lynette. And so, I can you know. talk
0: and listen. And this will be like... <laughs> 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 Let's talk a little bit about unpopular opinion so i mentioned chef priyanka and one of her unpopular opinions that really blew my mind is how much she hates salads and that was the most unpopular opinion ever is there something that you really really don't like that you would think someone that's a chef or someone that is in this plant-based community is there anything out there where people's jaws would drop like really you don't do that
1: Yes, I, I, you're not gonna believe it. Oh too. my
0: god, drum roll chocolate! I do not like chocolate. Thanks everybody for listening. Please subscribe and rate. <laughs> <laughs> ah, are you serious?
1: So, I loved milk chocolate, right? And since That's we not became <clears throat> exactly <laughs> so. But for me, the dark chocolate, the first time I had it, I, I just couldn't do it. It's just too bitter for me. I could just never get into the flavor of it. And I worked with tons of chocolate because I did pastry for a while, you know, out of school, working for John George. And I would dibble and dabble in it. But I can't sit there and how some people can just take a nice big chunk of chocolate or eat bitter chocolate with whatever it is they're yeah, doing.
0: Some people like me. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but to my defense, In the Caribbean, cocoa, right? You know, the actual fruit that makes the sort of chocolate that Mm -hmm. becomes the other chocolate. Mm -hmm. That cocoa, I don't mind. I just can't do that super potent bitter chocolate that is sold for pastry.
0: Okay, so there's just levels to your (laughs) chocolateness.
1: There is. (laughs)
0: Wow, that was a hell of an unpopular opinion. So there's some nuances within it. It's, you just have to kind of figure yeah. out how to how to make it work for you. And for the wild card, uh, you've mentioned Jar George a few times. You've mentioned Budokan. You've mentioned, obviously, like Chopped, and you are a familiar face in your own right. But who has been the most exciting, high-profile person that you've been able to serve?
1: Oh, man. I have a oh, nice you got a list. Oh, okay. I got, I got a <laughs> nice list.
0: Who's who's a part of the chef air cult?
1: Okay. So we have Bill Clinton. We have right. Diana Ross. Nice. We have Nicholas Cage. Oh um, Nick Cage. Yeah, we have Bradley Cooper.
0: And I don't remember who else. That's awesome. Bill Clinton, that's a, that's a pretty big one.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was, it was it was intense, you know, because obviously security had to come all through the kitchen. We had people standing in the kitchen while I was working, expediting. Everything had to have been checked. It was insane, but it was fun because it's New York City. So that kind of stuff happened on a regular basis anyway. Yeah, so no it way. wasn't so much foreign, but it was just very exciting to just see Secret Service just standing there looking like men in black you know, all serious in the kitchen. Right.
0: Yeah. Cause there's so many things <laughs> that can happen Exactly know, when it comes to just the security of the food. I mean, did he have like a taster? Let me try this sauce to make sure that Bill can have it.
1: <laughs> I know. Right. No, he, he went straight to town. It, it was, it was fun. That's yeah. Great.
0: That's great. Oh my gosh. I can see a book coming and it's not necessarily going to be a cookbook. How many countries have you lived in?
1: Wow. Jeez. I've lived in Grenada, St. Lucia, St. Kitts, Barbados, Trinidad, Guyana, and uh, Suriname.
0: Okay, so that's seven. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah, seven different cultures, and that all has, you know, played into how you're able to just make so many different amazing things happen with plant based. And I think that that's what people. Really appreciate that you get to just kind of cherry pick all of the amazing things that different cultures make. And I think that you are in such a great position to just continue to to thrive. It's so awesome. I did not know you lived in seven countries. With that, I want to get to one of the final questions, and that is, what is your woo-woo? Everyone has a woo-woo. Is it meditation? Is it affirmations? What's that (laughs) thing that you shake up? The magic oh, eight, ball? The yeah. eight ball. Yeah. ball. <laughs> <laughs> is it like burning sage? Like what? What is it that keeps your fire going that doesn't have directly to do, you know, with your work and career? How do you do it?
1: Man, I think it's a tie between martial arts and watching movies like i love okay. to watch movies okay
0: i saw a video of you with martial arts tell us more about that
1: yeah we've been doing martial arts for i think going on five years now four days a week and next year i'm going to be testing for my third degree black belt so yeah
0: yeah that's definitely a woo-woo dude <laughs> <laughs> no question how did you get into that and how do you feel like that plays out into just the pressures of for me i've always
1: been attracted to asian culture as a little kid you know i owned tons of vhs tapes of kung fu movies like i had a list going up to the ceiling like every weekend i would go to chinatown when i lived in new york and i would cop like two or three kung fu movies and then my uncles you know when I was a much younger kid, would take me to Chinese restaurants for takeout. I just loved that culture. From the food to the martial arts, it was just something that I was very passionate about. So my whole life, I literally wanted to do martial arts. And I was like, man, now I'm too old to do it. You know, (laughs) I'm like 30-something, like, who's going to do that? But I found a really amazing teacher. And I guess because I've been so fascinated and been watching it so much, that my brain was kind of already conditioned to do it without me mm,
0: realizing. Absolutely.
1: So it just, it just became very easy for me once I started doing it, right? I hope that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. I, I yeah. feel like when you're interested in something, I would say everything that I've been interested in and I've watched for a period of time, I've been able to go into it better than a beginner. Nice. You know what I mean? Like, not like, oh my God, I'm an expert. Like, but I've seen it enough. I've absorbed the culture enough. The only thing that literally was the most humbling ever was surfing. Because I don't care how many videos (laughs) I've watched of Kelly Slater or anything or anybody, you were literally trash until further notice. It was nothing (laughs) that you could do. So I completely understand that a thousand percent you got in and you could do a little bit yeah (laughs)
1: yes yes yes
0: yeah and that has been able to just spread over into just your everyday life yes
1: yep now my kids we all do it all five of us so my oldest she's a black belt now my two youngest are gonna actually be testing for their black belt maybe the end of this year and actually i even convinced my mom to do martial arts. So she is actually going to be testing for her black belt with my two youngest as well at the end of the year, just so, you know, she can stay young and, you know, healthy and, you know, be active.
0: Wow. You have such an incredible foundation for family. That is really one of the biggest takeaways that I've gotten from this conversation. Like family is so... Yeah, I mean, family is so intertwined from the support that you've been able to get just through over the years of making this transition to being able to come to the United States and work on things, working with your sister, getting your mom to do martial arts and your son (laughs) at age six tapping into the business and being a part of it and having these other businesses. It's phenomenal. This is great. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is great. Learn more? at superfoodschool.org.